turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing, Clark Hilton Engineering, and Dan Rice has given up the use of his office for the sake of the cause. Today we're going to uh, talk with uh, Melissa Henson. She's the program director for Parents Television and Media Council will talk about whether or not streaming services are family-friendly, and they've pr- produced a new study that provides answers to that question and gives you some insight as parents on how to select what you uh, bring into your home. We're also working on a possible interview with Rachel Gresler. She's a research fellow in economics, budget, and entitlements at the Heritage Foundation. We're going to talk about uh, Joe Biden's so-called infrastructure plan and whether or not it's a mistake. I'll just tell you right now, I think it is, and we'll give you the reasons why uh, she and I both believe that is the case. All of that coming up in um, today's program. Well, as you may know by now, 15 Oregon counties are moving to extreme COVID-19 risk on Friday. The move uh, to extreme risk, it bans indoor dining at restaurants and significantly reduces the number of people who can be inside a gym or indoor entertainment space, as well as other gathering places. Well, Oregon Governor Kate Brown on Tuesday announced that its counties, uh, these 15 counties, including, of course, Multnomah and Clackamas, will move back into the extreme risk category for COVID-19 coming up this Friday. Well, the move to extreme risk, it bans indoor dining at restaurants, reduces the number of people who can go inside a gym or indoor entertainment spaces. And the governor uh, announced that outdoor capacity limits for bars, restaurants, and other uh, sectors will be raised from 50 to 100 people in extreme risk counties as long as health and safety measures, including physical distancing, are in place. If you don't act now, if we as a state don't act now, she said, doctors, nurses, hospitals, and other healthcare providers in Oregon will be stretched to their limits treating severe cases of COVID-19. She said in a statement that was released yesterday that today's announcement will save lives and help stop COVID-19 hospitalizations from spiking even higher. With new COVID-19 variants widespread in so many of our communities, it will take all of us working together to bring this back under control. Well, the uh, again, the updated risk level will be in effect from the 30th of April through the 6th of May. So it's only a matter of weeks, but that could uh, change, of course, after that period of time. Uh, among those who are in the, uh, the high risk, or rather the extreme risk, are Baker, Clackamas, Columbia, Crook, Deschutes, Grant, uh, Jackson, Josephine, Klamath, Lane, Lynn, Marion, Multnomah, Polk, and Wasco counties. So if you are in those counties, you're now at extreme risk. Well, counties moving to extreme risk uh, will stay at that level for a maximum of three weeks and can move to the lower risk level if their case rates improve. Meanwhile, the governor's office announced that uh, updated risk levels would be announced weekly for at least the next three weeks in an effort to spread to rather speed up the return to normal business operations. 
Governor Brown said she's working with the Oregon lawmakers on a $20 million emergency relief package for businesses hit hard by the changing capacity limits in extreme risk counties. After conversations with legislative leaders, I am confident we can move quickly to bring relief to businesses and their employees in extreme risk categories. The vast majority of Oregon businesses have followed their uh, health and safety guidelines to protect Oregonians from COVID-19, even though doing so has come with an economic cost. This emergency aid will help businesses in extreme risk counties, end quote. Well, Jason Brandt, who's the president and CEO of the Oregon Restaurant and Lodging Association, told KGW that banning indoor dining is unfair to restaurants and in extreme risk counties. Make no mistake about it, we are being targeted when the data and the, t- the facts do not showcase significant spread in our environments. Becky Huttenberg, the president and CEO of the Oregon Association of Hospitals and Health Systems, said Portland area hospitals are ready for a potential surge of Patients. As the pandemic emerged last year, hospitals around the state set up a regional structure for collaboration to assist each other in managing capacity. We are working together, coordinating bed space, supplies, and essential services, just as we have successfully done many times on previous challenges like PPE and vaccinations. Well, last week, the governor said the state will analyze data again to determine if certain counties need to return to the extreme risk category. She said that if necessary, she would cancel the warning week and those counties would move into extreme risk starting Friday, April the 30th. So that could change over the next few days. For any county to go into the extreme risk category, uh, there have to be 300 people hospitalized in the state with COVID-19. There also must be a 15% increase in the seven-day hospitalization average over the past week. Uh, When Oregon updated the COVID-19 Uh, Risk levels, they were announced on the 20th of uh, April, 11 of the 23 high-risk counties qualified to be at extreme risk. However, because the statewide hospitalization criterion for extreme risk had not been met, the counties remained at high risk. Well, during her press conference uh, earlier this week, uh, the governor said Oregon can get to a place where most restrictions are lifted and the economy fully reopens Uh, No later than the end of June, how quickly we get there is up to each and every one of us. Well, in counties with extreme risks, the following activities will be allowed with health and safety protocols in place. For a complete list, you can go to sector risk level guidance um, online. Well, social and at-home gatherings with people from outside your household will be limited to a maximum of six people with a recommended limit of two households. Restaurants, bars, and other eating and drinking establishments will be limited to a capacity, a maximum of 50 people for outdoor dining only with only six people per table. Takeout is um, strongly encouraged. Indoor recreation, fitness, entertainment establishments, including gyms and movie theaters, can open with a maximum of six people total, not including employees, for establishments um, that are 500 square feet or larger. For establishments smaller than 500 square feet, capacity is limited to one person total. And that doesn't make sense to me, but I'm quoting outdoor recreation, fitness and entertainment activities, including outdoor gym activities will be allowed with a maximum limit of 50 people outdoors. Retail stores, grocery stores, pharmacies and indoor and outdoor shopping centers and malls. They'll be limited to a maximum of 50 percent of capacity with curbside pickup encouraged. 
Faith institutions, funeral homes, uh, mortuaries, and cemeteries will be limited to a maximum of 25% of capacity or 100 people indoors, whichever is smaller, or 150 people outdoors. Office uh, workplaces will be required to utilize remote work to a maximum extent possible, with public-facing offices closed to the public. And personnel services or personal service businesses will be allowed to continue to operate with health and safety measures in place. I imagine that's salons of various kinds. Long-term care facilities can allow limited outdoor visitation following established health and safety protocols. So that's where we are in Multnomah and Clackamas County at this point, being in the um, uh, the risk category that uh, we are in. And that will hold for the next couple of weeks. Meanwhile, the Centers for Disease Control, they've updated their guidelines to reflect that fully vaccinated Americans can forego masks outdoors when walking, jogging or biking outdoors or dining with friends at outdoor restaurants. Now, the updated recommendations come after infection uh, disease officials. They call for relaxed mask restrictions. The CDC notice still warned about the public health risk of gathering in crowded outdoor settings and urged both vaccinated and unvaccinated people to continue to wear masks at larger venues. More than 52 percent of eligible people in the United States have received at least one vaccine shot. President Biden says no masks outdoors for fully vaccinated people is a step toward normal living, although given the the proviso that goes along with that, not so much. Well, the president on Tuesday reiterated the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention updated guidance that fully vaccinated individuals no longer need masks while outdoors except in crowded settings. Now, the agency had released the new guidelines shortly before the president was set to provide an update on the pandemic. Earlier today, the president said the CDC made an important announcement starting today. If you are fully vaccinated and outdoors, not in a big crowd, you can go without a mask. The president said, noting that masks are still required in crowded spaces, um, you know, divine crowded five, six, ten people, such as music uh, venues and concerts. But when it comes to gatherings with a group of friends in the park or going to on a picnic, you can do this without a mask, he said, noting that the uh, federal health agency was able to change its guidance because the odds of getting or giving the virus are very low out in the open air. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, President Biden is expected to propose a new $1.8 trillion spending plan at his uh, State of the Union address. That's sort of in quotes because it's not technically a State of the Union. I'll explain in a few moments. It has limited attendance due to the pandemic, so that's another difference. Well, the President on Wednesday will give a primetime address at 6 o'clock p.m. Pacific time to a joint session of Congress, and it marks the biggest speech of his presidency so far and gives him the opportunity to lay out his agenda for the rest of his time in office. President Biden's address has also come on the eve of his 100th day in office, giving him the, the opportunity to reflect on what's been a busy few months including a coronavirus stimulus, a subsequent spending plan that he proposed, and partisan battles over immigration. Uh, President Biden is also expected to lay out a proposal for yet another spending bill, uh, which he says uh, he's going to call the American Families Plan. We'll talk more about that in the program as well. Well, this will be a follow-up to his American Jobs Plan, 
which the White House has sold as an infrastructure bill, and the American Rescue Plan, which was a stimulus uh, aimed at providing relief from the coronavirus pandemic. Well, here's what to uh, to expect, what you need to know about tonight's speech. Uh, the president will be speaking at 6 p.m. Pacific time. You can watch the address virtually anywhere. And uh, the address will take place in the white, the House chamber, rather, in the U.S. Capitol, where such addresses are usually held. But given the uh, pandemic, there will be fewer people in attendance. Well, the president, who recently assumed office, will deliver an address to a joint session of Congress rather than a State of the Union. This is because... Uh, They haven't been in office for very long, so apparently you can't give the State of the Union. His speech, however, is taking place later than most new presidents in recent years. Former President Trump, for example, spoke on February 28th in 2017. Well, the delay is largely attributable to the security situation at the Capitol after the uh, January 6th riot and the coronavirus pandemic. Well, the president is required by the Constitution to, from time to time, although it's not required that it's annual, give to the Congress information on the State of the Union. It's not even required that it may be made public to the general population. The speech isn't a requirement. Some past presidents have given their updates in writing. Oh, would that we could return to those days. President Woodrow Wilson brought back the tradition of giving a speech to Congress in 1913 after no president had done that same uh, practice since Uh, Thomas Jefferson. Calvin Coolidge was the first president to have his address to Congress broadcast on the radio, and Franklin Delano Roosevelt was the first to call it the State of the Union. President Harry S. Truman, he was the first to deliver the address on television, and Lyndon Johnson, the first to deliver it in prime time back in 1964. Well, Vice President Kamala Harris, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi uh, will be the most prominently visible attendees. They sit behind the president in the chamber, as is tradition for such addresses. Now, many members of Congress will not be able to be at the speech, however, due to the coronavirus protocols. Among the Republicans who will be there are Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell and House Majority, uh, rather House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy. Um, out of California, Senators Ted Cruz, Texas, Rick Scott of Florida will also be in attendance. Now, some House members who will be there are Representative Liz Cheney uh, and Representative Lauren Boebert from uh, Colorado. Now, House Minority Whip Steve Scalise, however, will not be at the event, nor will Senators Marco Rubio, Josh Hawley, and Tom Cotton. Among uh, Democrats, Senator Dick Durbin, Patrick Leahy, Dianne Feinstein, Amy Klobuchar, Chris Coons, John Hickenlooper, John Ossoff, uh, uh, Raphael Warnock, and several others will attend. There will be 35 Democratic senators at the address in all, well over half of their caucus. Chief Justice John Roberts will be the only member of the Supreme Court present. Secretary of State Anthony um, Blinken and Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin will be the only cabinet members present. There are all, uh, only expected to be about 200 people in the House chamber total, including 80 House members and 60 senators. Normally, there are about 1,600 people at presidential addresses like this one. Well, the American Families Plan will certainly be a part of the discussion. The plan includes universal high-quality preschool, and that's in quotes, high-quality preschool for three- and four-year-old children, according to a senior administration official, and two years of free community college for all Americans. The legislation will also include new funding for historically black colleges and universities, teacher training, expanded child tax credits, and a national paid leave program. The plan is expected to cost $1.5 
$1.8 trillion. I'm going to talk with Rachel Gresler from the Heritage Foundation. She's a research fellow in economic budget and entitlements. Uh, we'll talk about uh, whether or not this so-called infrastructure plan, as the president refers to it, is um, healthy for American families or if it's a mistake. So stick around uh, for that. The plan is expected to cost $1.8 trillion. Well, the Secret Service, Capitol Police, Metropolitan Police Department, U.S. Park Police, and other agencies will provide security for what will be a very locked-down Capitol complex uh, this evening. So uh, you can keep your eyes open for that. Starting at 7 p.m., sections of a number of streets will be closed off, including Pennsylvania Avenue Northwest and Constitution Avenue Northwest. Uh, 17 total streets will see at least some level of closure. People with event credentials and with congressional IDs will be the only people allowed on the Capitol grounds starting 7 p.m. this evening. Vehicles will be subject to similar restrictions. The security situation will be closely watched after the attack on the Capitol in January. Well, what are the mask rules for this event? Well, House members will be required to wear masks on the House floor, according to a rule that was imposed by Nancy Pelosi earlier this year. House members will also be subject to a security sweep, also per House rules. But it's not clear how those rules will apply to senators or members of Biden's cabinet. So that will be interesting uh, to see. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer uh, was stumped when he when asked what the requirements for senators are going to be on the House floor, as House rules technically don't apply to senators. So who's giving the GOP response to Biden's speech? Well, that would be Senator Tim Scott, the first um, African-American senator, senator to represent a um, southern state, um, well, ever, uh, who has been pilloried by the, the media because of his background and uh, the fact that he's a Republican. He's going to deliver the Republicans' response to President Biden. He was chosen for the job by Mitch McConnell and Mr. McCarthy. Senator Tim Smith, Tim Scott, rather, is not just one of the strongest leaders in our Senate Republican conference. He is one of the most inspiring and unifying leaders in our nation, McConnell said. Nobody is better at communicating why far-left policies fail working Americans, end quote. I'm excited and honored for the opportunity to address the nation, Scott said in his statement. We face serious challenges on multiple fronts, but I am confident as I have ever been in the promise and potential of America. I look forward to having an honest conversation with the American people and sharing Republicans' optimistic vision for expanding opportunity and empowering working families, end quote. So who's going to deliver the uh, left-leaning response to Biden's speech? I didn't know there needed to be one that uh, coincides with and agrees with the sitting president, but nonetheless, uh, Representative Jamal Bowman who's a Democrat from New York, a member of the left-wing squad in the House, is going to deliver the Working Families Party response to Biden's speech. Um, he tweeted, honored to deliver the response to President Biden's address next week with Working Families, let's go. Well, the Working Families Party is a progressive party that is often a thorn in the side of establishment Democrats, but it often works with left-wing members of the party who otherwise are loyal Democrats. Bowman isn't expected to be exclusively critical of uh, Biden and as recently as Tuesday lauded the president's American Families Plan as an opportunity to rebuild our communities for our collective well being. But he is expected to aim to move Biden and the rest of the Democratic Party to the left. So this will be something to uh, behold as the president gives his uh, State of the Union, not State of the Union address. Now, as I mentioned, the president will deliver his first address to a joint session of Congress uh, tonight. But since this is his first, it's not technically called 
a State of the Union speech. It is an annual message. Now, since 1977, new presidents haven't called their first speech before a joint session of Congress a State of the Union. They're often referred to as an annual message or a message uh, address on a particular topic. Former President Jimmy Carter delivered a message on energy policy in 77, and economic addresses were given by Ronald Reagan in 81. In 93, Bill Clinton did the same, George W. Bush in 2001, and Barack Obama in 2009. President George Herbert Walker Bush gave a speech titled Building a Better America in 89, and President Donald Trump's speech in 2017 did not have a specific policy focus. Biden's speech is expected to touch on the coronavirus pandemic, the riot at the Capitol in January, and on his expansive policy proposals on infrastructure, if you broaden the definition of infrastructure. But it's not clear at this point if there's going to be a certain theme or policy focus in line with his predecessors. The joint session of Congress is an official working session of Congress. All State of the Union or annual message addresses are delivered before a joint session, not a joint meeting. So there you have it. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We need to take a quick break. When we return, we'll hear from Rachel Gresler, Research Fellow in Economics, Budget, and Entitlements. We're going to talk about Joe Biden's so-called infrastructure plan and whether or not it's a mistake. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. My next guest writes that this week, President Joe Biden is expected to use his State of the Union address to pitch his estimated $1.8 trillion American families infrastructure package. Infrastructure, by the way, in quotes. But this package is really more of a grab bag filled with assorted left-wing goodies such as a $225 billion federal paid family leave program, a $225 billion child care subsidy, and $200 billion for universal pre-K. Well, the main problem is these programs um, isn't the irrelevance of uh, to infrastructure or even their exorbitant expense, but that they won't achieve their intended goals. Well, my guest is uh, Rachel Gresler. She's a research fellow in economics, budget, and entitlements at the Heritage Foundation to talk with us about these um, elements of this very expensive infrastructure program. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Georgine. First of all, in the article that I've uh, referenced, uh, it's a bit puzzling that the word infrastructure is applied to the programs that I've mentioned as well as uh, others. It's not what comes to mind when you think of infrastructure. Can you tell us a a bit about this um, so-called infrastructure program or plan? Yeah, I mean, they're calling this infrastructure, but this is really more about American families, and instead of strengthening what we know to be the infrastructure of American families, them caring for one another in ways that that they have done since the dawn of time, this is actually going to break down the infrastructure of American families, undermining them and leaving them with fewer opportunities and less control over their circumstances. It's really about, you know, liberal politicians and government bureaucrats inserting their way into every component of American lives be that from childcare, pre-K, um, tax credits for having children, paid family leave that currently employers are mostly providing. Um, it's really just full of interventions that actually are going to take away opportunities for families to earn incomes and opportunities for them to make choices that are best for them. Now, in your column that appears in uh, the National Interest, published by National Interest, Um, You uh, point out that, and it might sound appealing to parents, uh, the expected proposal for a nationwide government-run paid family leave program. 
uh, it reverses the trend toward more and more uh, company paid maternity leave. Now, that might sound appealing to parents who are uh, looking for uh, options available to them for uh, family leave. What's the benefit of the uh, uh, private uh, paid maternity leaves that companies provide uh, and the nationwide government run paid family leave that the uh, president is proposing? Yes, I think we all can agree that you know every worker wants to have access to paid family leave, and there are huge benefits both to workers and employers for having that available. And I think COVID-19 is a prime example of that, and that's why we'll actually see even more policies um, that companies would be providing coming out of this. But when a company provides a paid family leave policy, they've willingly done that, and they've acknowledged they're, w- they're willing to take on the cost and accept the trade-offs of that, and they're able to p- provide more flexible and accessible policies in ways that government programs simply can't do. We've seen experience with European countries that have generous paid family leave programs that are yet inaccessible to low-income workers, and it's been the same reality with a lot of the state-based programs that exist in the U.S. today. You know, in California, Five, five times more high-income mothers use the program than low-income mothers, and it's actually been shown to you know, be regressive in nature and also to contribute to negative outcomes for workers, and that's because when it's a government program and it's rigid and restrictive, you end up having a lot more consequences than when you can have these more flexible policies. And instituting this government program now, when we've seen the most tremendous growth um, ever, in these employer-provided programs, it's just cutting off a good thing um, that's better than the government solutions. You know, we saw when we had tax cuts for businesses and reduced regulations, that freed up resources for companies to invest in their workers. And their workers said, we want paid family leave benefits, and they got them. The percentage of companies offering paid family leave, maternity leave, doubled from 26% in 2016 to 55% in 2020. That's an enormous increase over just mm-hmm. four years. And now 45% of companies are providing paid paternity leave. Um, you know, now is just a terrible time to cut off those programs that are actually helping low-income workers. Companies like Chipotle, McDonald's, Starbucks, all implementing these new programs, meeting the exact people that we're trying to. Yeah, yeah. What about that uh, $225 billion uh, new child care subsidy and the $200 billion for government-run pre-K. Yeah, and I see a, a big problem here because the government is basically taking a stance and trying to nudge families into having both parents work outside the home. And when you read the messaging points on this proposal, you know, I read it myself as a mother with six young kids and somebody who does work but who has had, you know, flexible options that allow me to kind of in, in my own way meet the best of both worlds, worlds, but I see this as them measuring women and mothers based on the income that they earn in the labor market instead of the investments and the contributions that they can make to their families and their children. And this goes for mothers and for fathers. You know, the goal of the government should not be to maximize the amount of formal labor that's performed so that they can increase their tax revenues um, and so that they can have more control over the rearing of children and the education they receive. But it should be to support families in whatever choices they want to make. And so while there's going to be, you know, over $400 billion now in more funding from the government, this is going to be regular curriculums that kids receive. Um, you know, we're going to 
inevitably see unintended consequences, just as has been the case with other countries' programs. You know, when Quebec instituted a $5 per day um, child care program, it was wildly successful at increasing the rates of women with young children who were working outside the home. Those rose by 14.5%. That made for more government tax revenues. But the researchers also found, and I'll quote here, striking evidence that children are worse off in a variety of behavioral and health dimensions, ranging from aggression to motor social skills to illness. Our analysis also suggests that the new child care program led to more hostile, less consistent parenting, worse parental health, and lower quality parental relationships. And that study also found that the teens who were exposed to that child care program had higher rates of crime and anxiety and lower levels of health and life satisfaction. So I think policymakers need to be taking a holistic approach here and not just measuring these, quote, investments in terms of how much they'll make the economy and the government revenues grow, but will they actually be better for families and for society? You write that um, to further expand the access of Americans to flexible and more generous paid family leave, policymakers should do what? What should they be considering? Or should the uh, federal government be out of the business of uh, these areas in the infrastructure plan altogether? Yeah, I don't think the government should set up their own program. Certainly shouldn't mandate that that be the program that's there for everybody. But there are things that policymakers can do to increase, especially low-income workers' access the paid family leave. And one of those policies is called the Working Families Flexibility Act. And this would just simply remove a government barrier that's out there right now that says if you are a low-income worker working for a private employer, you're not allowed to choose between paid time off or pay. We allow state and local workers to choose. It's called comp time, but we don't allow these lower-income private sector workers that choice. So that's one solution. And then also, you know, just expanding the access to flexible savings programs through universal savings accounts so that workers don't have the fear that if they put their money in a savings account, they're not going to be able to access it until they retire or until their child goes to college. If you eliminate that barrier, then people can save more without that fear of not being able to use it if their car breaks down next week or whatever their life circumstance will be. And those types of accounts could support families, whether it's for child care, for taking paid family leave, for saving for college or any other emergency that might arise. Do we know how much support the president has in Washington? Now, obviously, I would expect that the Democrats are in favor of the program, uh, although maybe that's uh, not the case. But how, how strong is the support behind the president with this infrastructure plan that he's going to announce tonight? I think it's going to be very um, partisan. There's going to mm-hmm. be a lot of support from liberals and virtually none from conservatives. Um, and then it's just going to come down to, you know, what are the actual outcomes of these policies they're proposing? And also, you have to talk about the price tag at some point. You know, that's mm-hmm. largely ignored when we're just talking about what types of benefits can the government provide as though it's this free pool of money and there, there are no offsetting costs. But the reality of all this spending that's already been enacted and then that's also been proposed is that it's mathematically impossible to pay for all this by simply taxing the rich. And so what we're really talking about is significant tax increases for middle income families. Um, and I think that if we you know, confront that reality, there's going to be a lot less support for it. Rachel Gressler, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate your insight. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Georgine. Rachel is a research fellow in economics, budget, and entitlements at the Heritage Foundation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Uh, Glad to have you with us. We've been talking about the President's State of the Union Address, his $1.8 trillion American Families Plan. He's calling it an infrastructure plan, as uh, Rachel just discussed. Um, And uh, there's there's a lot to listen to for the not-state-of-the-union uh, address. Senator Ted Cruz, who of course is a Republican and is opposed to the president's policies, had this to say about the uh, address. I, I'm tempted to call it the State of the Union address, but of course we now know that's not technically what it's called. But Ted Cruz writes uh, writes this, let me sum up Biden's speech in three words, boring but radical. President Biden will address a joint session of Congress Wednesday night and give Americans an update on the State of the Union as he approaches his 100th day in office. Again, quoting from Senator Ted Cruz, he will tout the $1.9 trillion COVID bill he signed, of which only 9% goes to actual COVID relief. He will also trumpet his $2 trillion infrastructure plan that would do very little to improve America's infrastructure. And it's been reported that he'll propose an American families plan that is likely to cost over a trillion dollars as well as a huge tax increase that would take more out of the pockets of hardworking Americans and a struggling economy. In fact, let me save you an hour of your time this evening and sum up President Biden's speech in three words, boring but radical. Uh, Wrapped up in stately, bureaucratic and polite prose will be the proposals that would take away more of America's hard-earned money, increase the national debt, increase the dependence of millions of Americans on the federal government while destroying jobs. And what Biden won't tell you is the truth about the effect his policies are already having on Americans. So allow me to give you the real State of the Union. Again, I'm quoting from Republican Senator Ted Cruz in anticipation of the president's speech this evening. In his first week in office, Biden made radical changes to U.S. policy that have ripped have had a ripple of effect all over the United States and beyond. Number one, he canceled the Keystone XL pipeline and gave 11,000 Americans, including 8,000 union workers, a pink slip during a pandemic that has decimated the economy. Stopping the Keystone XL pipeline, in the words of one laid-off pipeline worker, was a pretty good gut punch. Number two, Biden stopped construction of the border wall, reinstated the failed catch-and-release policy, and ended the very successful remain-in-Mexico policy that President Trump negotiated with the government of Mexico. The remain-in-Mexico policy established that immigration or immigrants from Central America who had crossed illegally through Mexico would stay in Mexico while their asylum cases were adjudicated in the United States. That agreement was a great victory, and it resulted in a massive drop in illegal immigration, so much so that in 2020, the United States experienced the um, lowest level of illegal immigration in 45 years. Now, because of Joe Biden's policies, we have the highest rate of illegal immigration in 20 years. Number three, Biden rejoined the Paris Climate Agreement. In doing so, he indicated that he's more interested in the views of the citizens of Paris than in the jobs of the citizens of Pittsburgh. Rejoining the Paris Agreement isn't about restoring America's leadership abroad or solving the climate crisis. It's about Democrats' plan to destroy jobs that they don't like, including thousands of manufacturing jobs and ceding control of our economy and energy future to other countries. I also believe this renewed commitment to the Paris Agreement will be used by Biden's administration to, as justification rather, for a whole litany of new executive actions and burdensome regulations to shape our energy and environmental policy, which will burden American families, manufacturers, and businesses with higher energy costs at a time when they're already struggling. 
And the irony, without the Paris Climate Agreement, the United States has led the world in emissions reductions. Over the last 50 years, the United States has dramatically reduced the levels of some of the most harmful pollutants and improved the air quality for all Americans, while at the same time helping more people get better paying jobs and improving their lives. Further, after promising to go well beyond court packing on campaign trail last year, Biden has signed an executive order establishing a commission to look at changing the dynamics of the Supreme Court, and Democrats in Congress are keen on packing the Supreme Court with four more justices. Democrats are angry that President Trump filled judicial vacancies with more than 200 principled constitutionalists, including three justices on the Supreme Court. Democrats are filled with rage and they're perfectly happy to destroy the independence of the judiciary by packing the Supreme Court with four liberal activist judges. At a time when we're so often one vote away from seeing our fundamental liberties taken away at the Supreme Court, our freedom of speech, our Second Amendment rights, our religious liberty, we cannot have Democrats change the structure of the Supreme Court to achieve their partisan ends. The fact of the matter is that President Biden has behold, is beholden rather to the far left of his party, including avowed socialists like Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Senator Bernie Sanders, who want to destroy the American blue-collar economy, spend trillions of dollars on socialist programs, and bankrupt the United States while opening our borders to human trafficking and drug cartels. For the sake of our country, we cannot let that happen. In the Senate, I'm fighting, again, uh, quoting from uh, the writer of the column, Ted Cruz, I'm fighting each and every day for the things Americans want most, more jobs, more opportunity, and higher wages. People want to achieve the American dream, but Joe Biden's radical vision for our country is an American nightmare. Now, this is just a a um, taste of the rebuttal that we're going to hear uh, from Senator Smith uh, following the not State of the Union of President Biden earlier in the day. Well, in other news, John Kerry is denying allegations that he divulged Israel's covert operations. U.S. Special Climate Envoy John Kerry on Monday denied allegations that while he was serving as Secretary of State under Barack Obama, he informed the Iranian foreign minister of Israeli operations in Syria. In a Twitter post, he called the claims detailed in the leak audio obtained by several media outlets unequivocally false. By the way, many of those media outlets just chose not to cover it. Imagine if he had been a part of the Trump administration. Iranian foreign minister Mohammad Javed Zarif pardon me, alleged in the audio that Kerry told him that Israel had struck around 200 Iranian targets in Syria. The Iranian leader admitted he was shocked by the purported admission, as reported by the New York Times. Republicans were quick to jump on the reports as a betrayal to Israel, a key U.S. ally in the region, with some even calling for Kerry's resignation from his post in the Biden administration. In other developments, Iran's foreign minister says John Kerry told him about Israeli covert operations, and John Kerry is facing calls to resign over these allegations of leaking the intel to Iran. The New York Times buried the bombshell that John Kerry told Iran about Israeli covert operations, covered it, but you had to look for it. North Carolina protests erupted in Elizabeth City as say, uh, uh, they're thrust into an, the national spotlight. Protesters took to the streets in Elizabeth City, North Carolina for the sixth consecutive day Monday 
following the killing of Andrew Brown Jr. last week. The protests look, took place rather several hours after Brown's family said they were only allowed to see a small portion of the police body camera footage of the April 21st event. Authorities have released few details on the shooting and video of the incident has yet to been made public. On Monday evening, hundreds of protesters marched through the city's downtown area and some carried signs and chanted, release the tape, the real tape. Local police who were blocking traffic to allow the protesters to pass by were confronted by the crowd on two occasions, according to the Charlotte Observer. Say his name, say his name, the group yelled before moving on. My understanding is the decision has been made to withhold those tapes for another 30 days. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. Then we'll be back to talk with Melissa Hinson. She's the program director for the Parents Television and Media Council. We'll talk about streaming services and how parents can navigate the offerings um, and still keep their families safe and protected. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. You know, during this pandemic where we've all been quarantined, we may find ourselves watching more entertainment media than usual and trying to make choices about what's in the best interest of our household. Well, the Parents Television and Media Council has a new study of streaming TV services, and they evaluate the good, the bad, and the ugly of streaming from a parent's perspective. Well, parents are awfully struggling with the uh, uh, how to navigate these options to find uplifting, cost-effective entertainment that the kids will love and is family-appropriate. Well, last week, a new report from the Parents Television and Media Council uh, was released and offers help ranking the top services according to uh, monthly cost, viewing options for families, and parental controls. Well, joining me to talk about that is Melissa Henson. She's a noted expert on entertainment industry trends and the impact of entertainment media on children and the American culture. As the Parents Television and Media Council's program director, she directs the organization's educational programs, research and advocacy for safe media environments for children and for families. And you should know that the Parents Television Council is a nonpartisan education organization advocating responsible entertainment. Melissa, it's a pleasure to have you back. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, tell us about this study and what prompted an analysis and review of streaming services that are available to families but may not be understood fully by those families. Yeah. Well, we first looked at um, streaming video on demand um, and uh, the over-the-top t- over uh, streaming devices. We, we looked at those the first time in 2017, but the market has changed substantially since then, um, and the, the number of new services that have entered the marketplace, the number of people that are cutting their cable and switching to exclusively uh, streaming video um, has just skyrocketed, and that, that the pace of that change has has only accelerated because of the pandemic and the number of people that are home all day uh, have no other entertainment outlets or options available to them. So there has been a huge spike in the number of people that are streaming media over the past year. Um, But I think 
as much as um, parents may recognize that there is value to these streaming services in terms of um, the fact that you can get the content you want when you want it, you don't have to wait, you know, for 3.30 p.m. when the program comes on uh, the Disney Channel or Nickelodeon or, or whatever channels you're used to watching. You can watch it at your convenience whenever you want to. Um, and there's a huge catalog of, of programs available. Um, but I think many parents are not fully aware of some of the downsides, some of the potential costs, some of the hidden dangers that exist for streaming video. Well, let's talk about uh, the cost perspective um, as we begin. Uh, Advertiser-supported streaming services play a role in all of that. What should we look for in terms of cost? Well, uh, yeah, so there are a few options out there that are advertiser-supported, and usually it's the streaming services that were sort of spun off of uh, broadcast networks. So, for example, um, there's Peacock, uh, which is uh, NBC. There's Paramount Plus, which is uh, CBS. Um, Those are advertiser-supported streaming services, and those are usually going to be your cheapest options because they are sort of subsidized uh, by advertisers. So you can get away with paying, you know, as mu- as little as $5 a month for those streaming services uh, with ads. Um, and then for about twice that much or about n- almost $10 a month, you can get it without ads. Um, but those are generally going to be your m- most affordable options. Now, the report says that Disney provides the best economic value for families with young children who are looking primarily or exclusively to stream family-friendly content. Uh, We're talking primarily about the economics at this point. Uh, There may be a downside in some other areas, but talk a bit about Disney and how this is at least an economic um, advantage for families with young children. Yeah, so Disney Plus. Uh, is right now it's only about six ninety nine a month. Although I think uh, we recently uh, heard that they were increasing that to seven ninety nine a month. So they they this happens with many of the streaming services as they periodically raise the raise the raise the cost. So I think mm-hmm. Disney Plus is now going to be seven ninety nine a month. But they have um, a huge inventory, a huge catalog of um, animated programs. They own Marvel now. They own the Star uh, Star Wars uh, franchise. So they have a huge catalog of, of uh, titles and, and entertainment that are preferred or, or, or favored by families. They also uh, have a lot of nature documentaries, um, the Pixar movies, of course, and, you know, all the, the classic Disney films that many people grew up with are all available on the Disney Plus platform. They used to be available on Netflix, but, um, you know, Disney uh, dropped those licensing agreements so that they could make, them, make those shows available exclusively on Disney Plus. What about parental controls and how important is that on a streaming service? It is extremely important. I think it's important for parents to recognize that um, these streaming services are not bound by federal broadcast indecency laws um, because they're not using broadcast airwaves. And so what you're going to find is on many of these streaming services, there are no content restrictions um, on Paramount Plus, for example, even familiar franchises, even familiar familiar titles like uh, Star Trek, for example, is available on Paramount Plus. Well, you're going to hear the F word 
on the the new Star Trek Discovery that's uh, exclusively available on Paramount Plus. You never would have heard that, you know, on on mm-hmm. a Star Trek that aired on on broadcast TV, but you will on Paramount Plus. There's a lot more foul language, a lot more explicit sexual content, a lot more violence than you're used to on broadcast or even advertiser supported basic cable. So parents need to be aware of that, and it is important to use the parental controls that are available. Um, it, uh, in many cases, we found the parental controls are lacking, they're inadequate, but to the extent that they're available, I think it's important that parents be aware of them and use them. What about um, uh, streaming services, uh, content description, so that whether or not um, it's family-friendly or they have parental controls, you at least know what to expect in terms of the content. How are streaming services handling that for the most part? Yeah, so um, it's kind of all over the place right now. Um, there is or does not appear to be any sort of industry standard in terms of how they're dealing with content descriptors. So what we found is that um, some services use content descriptors, others don't. Hulu, for example, is pretty good about using content descriptors. Amazon Plus has its own content descriptors. So if you're used to LSDNV that you see on broadcast and cable television. Well, Amazon has its own collection of content descriptors. Likewise with HBO Max, they, you know, they might flash a screen at the beginning of an episode saying, you know, this program contains drug use, um, nudity, sexual situations, and so forth. So every streaming service has its own version of, of content warnings, content labels. I think it's important to recognize that most of them do use some sort of age-based rating system. Um, there's going to be a lot more stuff that's rated MA, a lot more adult content, and it's important to pay attention to those ratings. If they're saying it's for adult audiences, take that seriously mm-hmm. because the adult content can be very adult. Mm. Now, I know the Parents Television and Media Council is making recommendations to the entertainment industry in this area that they establish best practices guidelines. Can you explain what that means and what you're asking them to consider doing? Yeah, well, uh, so again, if you look at the parental controls that are available on the streaming services, um, it really is sort of a mixed bag. Many of them will use some combination of um, pin-controlled uh, access. So usually you would set um, an upper age limit or an upper rating limit. So for example, if you have mostly young children in your house, you might say if it's rated PG-13 or above, um, uh, I want it blocked. And you would have to enter a PIN code or a password in order to access content that's rated PG-13 or TVMA. Um, most of the most of the streaming services have something along those lines. Um, on Hulu, though, you can switch back and forth between a child's profile and an adult profile, and there are no barriers to stop a child from doing that. Moreover, we found that um, content that is marketed to and rated for teens, um, you know, there's basically only two settings, either kids yes or kids no on Hulu. So if it's kids yes, that means kids as young as six or seven uh, can access stuff that's intended for teen audiences. And sometimes the PG-13 stuff can be pretty raunchy, pretty inappropriate. So Mm -hmm. it's unfortunate that there's no way to further limit 
um, and say, no, I only want stuff that's appropriate for young children. I don't want the teen, teen rated stuff. So there's a lot of improvements that can be made. Um, Netflix gives you the ability to block individual titles, which is a great thing considering that they have shows like 13 Reasons Why and Cuties. So if you have concerns about a specific title, you can block that. That's something that all of the streaming services should adopt. Beyond that, they should also adopt the ability to um, block an entire genre. For example, uh, in our home, I, I hate horror films. I, I will not watch them. I don't even want to see the, you know, the, the poster art um, as I'm scrolling through the menu. I don't want to see it. I would love to be able to block that. Um, and that's an option that should be available to families. If they don't want certain categories or genres of content, they, they should be able to block those entirely. Well, the title of the uh, report is Dollars and Cents, A Parent's Guide to Streaming uh, Media. We'll put a link on the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page because it's a great study to help inform parents about where things stand now, making some recommendations, but also what we need to ask for moving forward in the future. Melissa, it's always a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Again, Melissa Hansen is the Program Director for the Parents Television and Media Council. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. I want to resume looking at some of the headline news from both yesterday and today. A Los Angeles police officer pinned a letter to LeBron James requesting a sit down to talk about policing. The police officer happens to be African-American. Well, the black Los Angeles officer who's worked in the city's Skid Row area for two decades invited the basketball star to have a discussion about policing following a much criticized tweet from the Lakers star related to the fatal police shooting of a teenage girl. Dion Joseph, a 24-year veteran of the LAPD, he posted a letter to his Facebook page that was on Sunday, and he addressed it to James where he called his stance on policing off-base and extreme. Somebody stood up to him. Well, James has frequently spoken out against racism and police misconduct in recent years. Well, he came under fire last week after tweeting an image of a Columbus, Ohio police officer following the shooting of um, uh, Micaiah Bryant, who was shot by an officer as she was attacking another teen with a knife. Well, the incident occurred minutes before a Minneapolis, Minnesota jury convicted Derek Chauvin in the death of George Floyd. You're next. Hashtag accountability, James tweeted with the officer's image. Well, he later deleted that post, saying it was being used to create more hate. Well, yeah, it was. In other developments, an Ohio bar is refusing to show NBA games until LeBron James is expelled. The Lakers star fired back, and of course, he won't be expelled. ABC and CBS avoided LeBron James' tweet targeting a Columbus police officer, uh, the morning and evening news programs. He's a popular star, an athlete. A Newsome uh, recall has been officially triggered as the verified signature threshold has been met. Now, that's a far cry from actually removing him, but it's happened in California before. In the census sweepstakes, Texas will gain two House seats, while New York and California are among the losers. White House Secretary Saki says Vice President Harris hasn't gone to the border because she's working on a diplomatic level. Okay. President Biden's estate tax changes will wipe out millions of small businesses, critics say. And Tesla claims the deadly Texas car crash may have had a passenger behind the wheel. Uh, GM President Rue says a chip shortage is the worst auto supply issue ever as sale prices rise. Well, Iran's foreign minister says that John Kerry informed Iran of hundreds of Israeli operations in Syria. The media doesn't seem all that interested in the story, however. He has a D 
behind his name. Iranian Foreign Minister Mohammad Javid Zarif, he claimed in recently leaked audio that John Kerry, when he was serving as Secretary of State during the Obama administration, informed him of more than 200 Israeli operations in Syria. Kerry has previously been accused of colluding with Iranian leaders to undermine the Trump administration. And Kerry is now part of the Biden administration and has a seat on the National Security Council as the special presidential envoy for climate. Kerry shocked Zarif uh, by revealing that Israel had attacked Iranian targets in Syria more than 200 times, according to leaked audio obtained by The New York Times and other outlets. An interesting thread on the events includes John Kerry's denial. And David Harsini points out that a high-ranking American official feels comfortable sharing this information with an autocratic adversary, a government that murdered hundreds of Americans, regularly kidnapped them, interfered with our elections, and propped up a regime that gasses its people about the covert actions of a longtime American ally. What else did he tell Zarif? Well, the Times doesn't say it wouldn't be surprising if Israel was more reluctant to share intel with the United States when Democrats such as Kerry show more fondness for those making genocide threats against the Jewish people than they do for the state that protects them. And of course, Kerry would not have moved forward in that area without the president under whom he served knowing the details. Well, it's official. California Governor Newsom will face a recall vote and an Oregon runner who was required to compete with a mask on collapsed after running out of oxygen due to the dangerous uh, rule imposed by Democrats, according to Oregon Live. Well, from the Daily Wire, last Wednesday in Bend, Summit High School held its first high school track and field meet in nearly two years. The meet had a different look this time around as athletes were required to wear masks while competing. Now, I have been an athlete, a runner. I can't imagine trying to compete with a mask on. Uh, but it's required by the mandate in the Oregon Health Authority. From the Bend Bulletin, a couple of meters from the finish line, the 800, which is the toughest race to uh, to run, and with everyone else in the race in her wake, she was the leader, Maggie Williams began to fall. I was pushing so hard and everything went blurry and I just fell, said the junior speedster. But luckily, I fell at the right spot and crossed the line with my head. Well, from Outlook, uh, her coach, Dave Turnbull, Thinks the mask rule is a ticking time bomb. I'm concerned with the mask rule, he told the bulletin reporter. Uh, this is what I'm worried about, and I said this at the beginning of the season. You get a kid running the 800 and a mask on, it's actually dangerous. They don't get the oxygen that they need. Uh, this rule needs to change. Now, I ran the 800 once in a meet, and without a mask, uh, you could just pass out uh, trying to do what is sort of a cross between a long distance and a sprint. So I can't imagine trying to do that in competition. CDC says kids need uh, masks at camp. So if you're planning on sending little Jimmy to camp, he's going to need to bring his mask. It's um, as if there's no vaccine and kids are the same category as 80-year-olds. Republican lawmakers are fighting back. Bethany Mandel says this is why my kids got pulled from summer camp. It's unsafe and unscientific. Molly Hemingway says even if you're an outdoor mask enthusiast at this late date, despite the complete lack of scientific support for the same, I think we all can agree that masking children outdoors at the very least is abusive, right? Meanwhile, in Michigan, they now want kids two and four to wear face masks in public before they said five and above. Playing along with the insanity, Biden is wearing masks on Zoom calls. Simon & Schuster employees are demanding no deals with former Trump officials. They're still seething over the decision to publish a book by former Vice President Mike Pence. Former presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard is speaking out about the racialization of everything. 
Katie Pavlich points out that former presidential candidate and Democratic Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard is blasting members of her political party, although not by name, for the racialization and hate of everything and everyone. Tulsi Gabbard says aloha means respect and love for others. It's what enables us to see beyond our skin color and see the soul, the person with them. So let's do our best to cultivate this aloha in our hearts and see and treat others through their uh, prism of love, not through the prism of race and ethnicity. Please let us not allow ourselves to be led down this dark and divisive path of racialist, racialism rather, and hate. Kudos, Tulsi Gabbard. Well, in government and politics, Health and Human Services won't uh, say how Kamala Harris's book ended up in welcome bags for migrant children. And Biden established a $15 an hour minimum wage for federal contractors. In national security, the Department of Homeland Security has launched a review of white supremacy among its ranks. Uh, translated in many cases is just simply being white. Iran aims to expand its weapons of mass destruction program, according to German Intel Agency. And Oklahoma and Montana governors have signed pro-life laws. The United Methodist Church leaders, they filed a uh, file to create a new denomination separating over issues of sexuality and gender, which has certainly permeated the church. Louisville Police Department is staffing is uh, in dire straits with high uh, crime rates and recruitment woes, according to the union, nearly 190 police officers left the Louisville, Met- Louisville Metro Police Department in 2020, and 43 have stepped away from the Kentucky City's agency so far in 2021, either choosing to retire or resign altogether as law enforcement officials struggle to recruit new members to make up for the deficit in manpower, authorities, and a union spokesperson told Fox News on Tuesday. I would say that we're in dire straits. Uh, River City Fraternal Order of Police Press Secretary David Mulcher speaking to the current conditions of the LMPD staff. Uh, Mulcher also serves as a spokesperson for the Louisville Metro Officer Union. Statistics provided by the agency on Tuesday show the department has hired 26 new members so far this year, while 43 have left. The 1,069-person department falls 255 people short of its authorized strength of 1,324. The number of personnel is uh, it is authorized to employ according to stats. Meanwhile, LMPD hired 104 new members in 2020, but lost 188 to retirement and resignations, according to data. By the end of last year, they employed 1,163 police personnel instead of the 1,300 authorized strength. From 2013 to 2019, the difference in actual employment numbers and authorized strength has ranged from 45 to 101. In 2020, it climbed to 161 before reaching a a 255-year-to-date in 2021. Our manpower is critically low, Mulcher went on to say. One thing we have to consider when we're talking about recruiting is that in the climate that we're currently finding ourselves, the pool of people wanting to become officers is shrinking every day. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, LAPD officials slammed the Oscars celebrities for anti-law enforcement rhetoric during a police-guarded event. They should have just heeded the uh, the call and walked away. Greg Gutfeld points out that the media ignores good policing while highlighting the bad. That's kind of the uh, the template these days. President Biden's lack of a designated survivor at the congressional address means 
Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen could become the, the president of the United States in a disaster. She would become president in the case of a hypothetical capital disaster since President Biden hasn't yet named a designated survivor for his Wednesday address to Congress. Now, he may do that before this evening at six. A designated survivor is the person in the presidential line of succession chosen not to attend an event in the uh, the case of a mass casualty event that kills all uh, other potential successors. Designated survivors typically stay in an undisclosed location during important events. There does not need to be a designated survivor because the cabinet will be watching from their offices or their homes, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said during a briefing yesterday when asked whether the president would have a designated survivor during the speech in light of COVID-19 audience restrictions, keeping some Capitol members home. Well, the White House clarified that because the White House's decision, Yellen would take over as president in the event of a catastrophic event unless Democratic Vermont Senator Patrick Leahy, Senate President Pro Tempore, decides not to attend the event in person, in which case he would fall next in line of succession. In other developments, President Biden's address to Congress will continue the tradition of adapting to the times with a rather sparse crowd due to COVID. The White House refuses to allow more reporters to cover the outdoor Biden speech on relaxed CDC guidance. Well, the U.S. Navy fired warning shots on three Iranian fast boats that got too close. The U.S. Navy warning shots uh, um, uh, were on Revolutionary Guard Corps Navy patrol boats in the northern Persian Gulf on Tuesday after verbal warnings by U.S. forces were first ignored. Well, fast inshore attack craft, or FIAC, were used to approach the USS Firebolt and U.S. Coast Guard patrol boat USCGC Baranoff at what naval officials called an unnecessarily close range with unknown intent. After warning by the U.S. vessels through radio and loud Um, hailer devices when ignored by the Iranian patrol boats, the USS Firebolt warning shots, prompting the vessel to retreat. A Navy official said U.S. forces used pre-planned responses to de-escalate the situation, avoid collision, and reduce risk of miscalculation. In other developments, Iranian warships menacing U.S. vessels in the Persian Gulf and the latest propagation is not new. ABC, CBS, NBC, MSNBC all skipped John Kerry's controversy over alleged leaking of Israeli intel to Iran. Nothing to see here, ladies and gentlemen. And Mr. Pompeo, he slammed the Iran news, pointing out that when I was briefing Trump, Kerry was briefing Zarif. Well, today, among the must-reads, Biden cuts off press questions, saying... I'm really going to be in trouble if I keep answering. That raised many eyebrows and confirmed for some that he's being very carefully managed. A New York City drunk driver suspect sobs and apologizes for the death of an NYPD officer saying, I'm sorry, even after she was seen um, drinking heavily and threatening to kill a police officer. Well, the Fed is likely to stay the course despite the U.S. economy's growing momentum. And Samsung, rather, Samsung's Lee family is going to pay more than 100, or rather $10 billion inheritance taxes. Hawaii tourists are turning to U-Haul amid car rental shortages there. Republicans are seeking to stop Biden's radical school curriculum that pushes the already humiliated 1619 project in critical race theory. Jason Riley points out in the Wall Street Journal op-ed that racism is not the problem. The left wants you to believe it is. It is an issue, but it's not all that it's being cracked up to be by activists. Meanwhile, CNN is praising Biden for his COVID turnaround, not realizing or just not wanting to admit he simply followed the formula by President Trump. Caution, you'll be 
will pull your hair out as you read the bizarre propaganda they published. Mark Hemingway says we were vaccinated and we uh, were vaccinating a million people a day and ramping up rapidly when Biden took office. This article is credulous uh, Biden propaganda. The Wall Street Journal says the White House pretense that it inherited a COVID mess is nonsense. The vaccine production was pre-planned while some state rollouts were bumpy when there was more vaccine demand than a supply. And the main job of the administration was to accelerate the distribution that was already underway. Meanwhile, Oregon is banning fans from attending sporting events as they treat the pandemic as if we were back to April of 2020. A longtime Oregon sports writer, John Canzano, he blasted the governor and her staff for being clueless on how sports actually work. On an Oregon football fan site, the fans are hammering the governor for said prohibition. Over 400 businesses, including Delta and Amazon, are demanding civil rights for gays over religious rights. Pushed by the far-left human rights campaign, the list includes Pepsi, Apple, Marriott, Starbucks, and Home Depot. The story notes the Equality Act would amend existing civil rights law to explicitly include sexual orientation and gender identification as protected characteristics. Those protections would extend to employment, housing, loan applications, education, and other areas. The ABC News story didn't bother even noting the opposition. And COVID is ravaging India, as many feared it would. The story begins, crematories are so full of bodies as uh, it's as if a war just happened. Fires burn around the clock. Many places are holding mass cream, uh, cremations, dozens at a time. And at night, in certain areas of New Delhi, the sky glows. Sickness and death are everywhere. Dozens of houses in uh, many neighborhoods have sick people. Remember to pray for the people and the ministries in India. Arizona's governor has signed a bill banning genetic-driven abortions. The bill, signed by Republican Doug Ducey, outlaws abortions that target Down syndrome babies. Well, Biden, the president, is rolling out his $1.8 trillion plan to boost social welfare spending and tax the rich. Uh, Biden will present the American Families Plan during his first presidential report to Congress tonight as the second installment of his Infrastructure Plus legislative priority. Along with the American Jobs Plan, both proposals form a $4 trillion Build Back Better agenda introduced after the passage of the American Rescue Plan. Biden's Build Back Better agenda faces an unfriendly Congress. Despite Democratic majorities, the party and its independent allies only have 51 votes in the Senate when the tie-breaking vote of Vice President Kamala Harris is included. That's shy the 60 votes needed to end debate and avoid a filibuster. The process of reconciliation could be relied on to pass a bill without Republicans, but its provisions have to be uh, have affect uh, the federal budget. The Biden administration hinted uh, yesterday it's not as amenable to negotiations regarding the American Families Plan as it is on the American Jobs Plan. In other news, the FBI has opened a federal civil rights investigation into the death of Andrew Brown Jr., the black man who died during an attempted arrest in North Carolina last week, was shot five times, once in the back of the head. His family said Tuesday, less than an hour after an independent autopsy concluded the man, uh, 42, was killed by a bullet in the, in the back of his head. The FBI announced that it was opening a federal civil rights investigation. Well, the white supremacist Washington Post has endorsed Terry McAuliffe over two qualified black women. At least that would be the narrative if we were talking about Republicans. But in this case, McAuliffe is a well-respected 
Democrat. Former Obama White House advisor Seth Andrew has been arrested and accused of stealing from the charter school he founded. And the Senate has confirmed Pentagon nominee Colin Call after the battle over tweets and Midwest views. In national security, a federal court approved FBI's continued use of warrantless surveillance power despite repeated violations of privacy rules. And DHS has limited power of ICE to arrest immigrants in courthouses, I should say in and around courthouses. Around the nation, a Connecticut lawsuit to protect girls and women's sports has been dismissed, and female athletes are appealing that judge's dismissal. Arizona's governor has signed a pro-life bill into law, and red state pro-life reforms could spark Supreme Court standoff. Many are hoping for just that, others dreading uh, the conservative court taking up the issue. Black people overwhelmingly support local police departments, by the way. You can read more in the Washington Examiner. And a Los Angeles police officer has invited LeBron James to a discussion on policing. He, too, is African-American. The real ID deadline has been extended again to May 3rd, 2023. And a reporter has resigned the New York Post over dubious Kamala Harris book story, They refused to fabricate. On this day in history, 1967, Muhammad Ali is stripped of his heavyweight boxing title after he refuses to be drafted into the U.S. Armed Forces for the Vietnam War. 1993, the first Take Our Daughters to Work Day, promoted by the New York-based Ms. Foundation, is held in an attempt to boost the self-esteem of girls by having them visit a parent's workplace. The event would be later expanded to include sons. 2009, Senator Arlen Specter of Pennsylvania defects from the Republican Party and joins the Democrat. Party. 2018, Alfie Evans, a 23-month-old terminally ill British toddler at the center of a legal battle over his treatment, dies at a British hospital. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. I want to give you a heads up. Tomorrow we'll talk with Craig Springer. He's the author of How to Revive Evangelism, Seven Vital Shifts in How We Share Our Faith. The book is published by Zondervan. He'll join us in the first hour of tomorrow's program. And then on Friday, we'll take a look, among other things, at the lighter side of the news. Also want to remind you, at 6 o'clock this evening, President Biden will be issuing what is not officially the State of the Union, but it's a an address to a joint session of Congress, whose ranks will be uh, uh, somewhat thinned given the coronavirus uh, pandemic. Uh, it will be held, from what I understand, outside, but there will be Uh, Just a fraction of both the senators and members of the House, only a small number of cabinet members, one Supreme Court justice, and you kind of get the idea. But that's tonight, 6 o'clock p.m. Pacific time. Well, the campaign to recall the California governor has collected more than 1.6 million signatures, and that has officially triggered a recall And it's been verified. The effort to recall the California governor um, has reached its threshold. The California Secretary of State said on Monday that the threshold of verified signatures uh, reported by counties has reached that mark. The campaign collected more than 1.6 million verified signatures. This is now triggering the next phase of the recall uh, process, a 30 business day period in which voters can submit written requests to county registrars of voters to remove their names from the recall petition, according to Secretary Weber in a statement. A recall election will be held unless a sufficient number of signatures are withdrawn. 
Uh, if after the 30 days uh, the effort retains enough signatures, the Department of Finance will be given 30 days to estimate the cost of the recall election. And after that, a budget committee will have 30 calendar days uh, to review those estimates before the lieutenant governor sets the date for the election. The recall ballot would ask voters to choose yes or no on the question of removing Newsom from office, followed by a selection of replacement candidates. More than 50 percent of voters would be required to say yes to remove him. Then the candidate with the most votes is elected governor, 50 percent or less. A spokesperson for Newsom's office didn't return uh, calls for a response, uh, but gold medal Olympian and reality show star Caitlin Bruce Jenner threw his her name into the ring to run as a Republican to replace Newsom. Uh, Jenner's team includes... Um, Several operatives that helped President Donald Trump's 2016 and 2020 campaigns. Other individuals who are running include businessman John Cox, former San Diego Mayor Kevin Falconer, and former uh, Representative Doug Ose. In a statement on Monday, Falconer pointed to Newsom's policies as a reason Californians are being forced to leave their home state in droves after the state lost a seat in the House of Representatives based on the updated 2020 census data. According to uh, data from the California Secretary of State's office, there have been 54 previous attempts to recall governors. Only one was successful, the recall of Governor Gray Davis in 2003. Former bodybuilder and actor Arnold Schwarzenegger was selected as his replacement. Former New York City mayor uh, has been served as the who rather served as former President Trump's personal attorney found his um, residence, his apartment raided by the feds. Federal investigators executed a search warrant on the former New York City mayor's uh, residence seizing electronic devices, according to sources. The raid on Giuliani, which was first reported by The New York Times, comes as federal authorities were investigating whether he violated the law by lobbying the Trump administration on behalf of Ukrainian officials in 2019. Giuliani has served as former President Donald Trump's personal attorney on a number of high-profile matters. According to Giuliani's attorney, Robert uh, Costello, seven FBI agents arrived at the apartment at 6 a.m. on Wednesday, remained uh, for roughly two hours. The agents seized several electronic devices, including laptops and cell phones. This is totally unnecessary, Costello says, claiming that the raid was done to make him look like he's some sort of criminal. We've seen that before. Well, the warrant has, uh, was based on suspicion that Giuliani violated the Foreign Agents Registration Act in lobbying on behalf of Ukraine. FARA requires individuals to notify the State Department if they are acting as a foreign agent. The FBI said that they have no comment on the matter, and the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York has declined to comment as well. We'll continue to follow the story as it presumably develops. Well, four female athletes are appealing a federal court's ruling that dismissed their challenge to a policy allowing biological males to compete in girls' and women's sports. Selena Soule, Chessie uh, Mitchell, Alana Smith, and Ashley Nicoletti uh, will continue to challenge the Connecticut policy represented by Alliance Defending Freedom, according to... uh, a release by ADF. Well, the four high school female athletes all have suffered in their athletic endeavors due to the presence of biological males in their sporting events. 
Uh, Mitchell, for example, would have won the 2019 state championship in women's 55-meter indoor track competition, but because two males took first and second place, she was denied the gold medal. Sol, Smith, and Nicoletti, likewise, have been denied medals and or advancement opportunities, read scholarships. A federal district court judge dismissed the girls' legal challenge to the Connecticut Interscholastic Athletic Conference policy that allows biological males to compete in categories of women's sports. I conclude that the plaintiff's challenge to the Connecticut Interscholastic Athletic Conference is not just uh, just I've never heard this word justicable. Um, as uh, this time and their claims for monetary relief are barred and dismiss the action on this basis without addressing the other grounds raised in the joint motion. U.S. District Court Judge Robert Chattigny wrote in the ruling released on Sunday. Well, the judge said that the girls' request had become moot since the two trans- transgender athletes whose participation in girls' track provided the impetus for this action already had graduated. Uh, There is no indication that Alana Smith and Ashley Nicoletti will encounter competition by a transgender student in a Connecticut uh, interscholastic athletic conference sponsored event next season. Well, there isn't today, but the point is the principle there could be tomorrow unless there is a change in protection. He went on um, to say that defendants counsel have represented that they know of no transgender student who will be participating in girls track and field at the time. At that time, it's still theoretically possible that a transgender student could attempt to do so. Even then, however, a legally cognizable injury to these plaintiffs would depend on a transgender student running in the same events and achieving substantially similar times. Seems to me the judge is missing the point. Given the rules of the Interscholastic Athletic Conference, this could and will happen at any time. Uh, someone could transfer. The opportunity uh, could arise at any point. The, the the challenge being that it should not be permitted because of the clear disadvantage to women in women's sports. Well, these uh, athletes are challenging the outcome, and we'll uh, certainly continue to follow that story to see if their appeal is upheld. Well, we are out of time. Once again, I want to remind you tomorrow we'll be talking with uh, Craig Springer, author of How to Revive Evangelism, Seven Vital Shifts in How We Should Share Our Faith. Zondervan is the publisher. And then on Friday, we'll take a look at the lighter side of the news. President uh, Biden's um, joint statement to a joint session of Congress coming up at 6 o'clock p.m. Pacific time. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, and Dan Rice for the use of his, his office. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.